welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Greetings, everyone. This is Chris Rickard sitting in for Kevin on the Immigration Review. I'm delighted to be here and grateful for his confidence in letting me approach his standards. We have six cases for you this week. He's going to lead off with a Fourth Circuit case on biometrics notice. And then I have five, the first two of which are crimes involving moral turpitude, an interesting one in between on final administrative removal orders from the First Circuit, and then the last two are asylum, withholding, and convention against torture cases. Let's get to it. Your two-headed immigration review for February 21st, 2022. Next up, it's me again, with Mejia Velasquez v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on February 15th, 2022. This is the only case that I, your usual host, get to do this week, and it's on abandonment of asylum applications. Judge Motz dissented. Ms. Mejia Velasquez is from Honduras and applied for asylum in immigration court, based on she and her family's membership in a certain Honduran political party. At a master calendar hearing, the immigration judge set the matter for a final merits hearing, wherein, as so often occurs, the IJ warned Ms. Mejia Velasquez that she needed to have her fingerprints taken in compliance with DHS procedures before the final hearing. The fingerprints are so DHS can do a background check. The IJ issued the warnings in English to counsel, stating that if Ms. Mejia Velasquez didn't get the biometrics done, the IJ would, quote, deny her application for lack of completeness, end quote. The IJ also provided written notice of this requirement in English, and that notice states that failure to comply with the biometrics requirements would result in the application being deemed abandoned under the BIA's 2015 decision in matter of DMCP. Ms. Mejia Velasquez didn't get her fingerprints done by the time of the individual hearing, and DHS moved the IJ to pre-termit the application. The IJ did so, denying asylum for this reason alone. The BIA affirmed. And the Fourth Circuit did too. And Ms. Mejia Velasquez did concede that she didn't ever get her biometrics taken. 
She argued primarily, however, that, quote, she was improperly advised of her obligation to provide biometrics, as required by 8 CFR section 1003.47d, and the BIA's holding to the contrary was based on its flawed interpretation of that regulation in matter of DMCP, end quote. In essence, Ms. Mejia Velasquez argued that the regulations require that DHS do three things. One, notify the applicant of the need to provide biometrics. Two, provide the applicant with a biometrics notice. And three, provide the applicant with instructions for providing biometrics. Ms. Mejia Velasquez argued that matter of DMCP contradicts the regulations because it only requires DHS to do number one and number three. Therefore, argued Ms. Mejia Velasquez, the Fourth Circuit should not defer to the BIA's interpretation of the immigration regulations under the Supreme Court's recent Kaiser decision and should remand the case for consideration of her asylum application. And the Fourth Circuit actually agreed with that, but still ruled against Ms. Mejia Velasquez. That is, it agreed that matter of DMCP impermissibly, quote, omitted the requirement for providing applicants with a biometrics notice, end quote, and is therefore, quote, not entitled to deference, end quote. However, putting all that aside, the Fourth Circuit held that Ms. Mejia Velasquez actually received proper notice of the biometrics obligations as the regulations require. The IJ provided Ms. Mejia Velasquez a document with her obligations and consequences for biometrics at her hearing, and also warned her orally. It didn't matter to the Fourth Circuit that it was the IJ, rather than DHS, that provided the notice, even though the regulations require that DHS provide the notice, and even though IJs and DHS are separate entities. The Fourth Circuit also rejected Ms. Mejia Velasquez's argument that to comply with the regulations, the notice provided must be for an actual appointment to get fingerprints taken, rather than just warnings and instructions for the applicant to follow to get the appointment. Simply put, the Fourth Circuit doesn't believe the regulations require all of that, even if it sounds reasonable. Finally, the Fourth Circuit held it reasonable for an IJ to pre-termit an asylum application under such circumstances, and that the regulations permit an IJ to do so. The court disagreed with Ms. Mejia Velasquez's argument that her constitutional due process rights were violated. Even though nothing was translated for Ms. Mejia Velasquez at the hearing, and even though she didn't speak English, the hearing was procedural in nature, and Ms. Mejia Velasquez was represented by an attorney. Ms. Mejia Velasquez, therefore, will not have the opportunity to have her asylum claim adjudicated. A bit more on my one and only case this week. First, and unrelatedly, the Fourth Circuit states in this decision that, as defined in immigration law, the word, quote, notice, when coupled with the indefinite or definite article, means a written or printed announcement, end quote. I don't know, might this be a quote to remember on deficient NTA-type arguments in the Fourth Circuit? And for those of you wondering about the mechanics of all of this biometrics stuff, and of course, double-check me on this, but here's how it usually works. Ms. Mejia Velasquez should have submitted copies of certain portions of her asylum application filed in immigration court with other documents to USCIS, which would have then sent her a receipt and then a notice scheduling her biometrics appointment. Then, of course, she would have needed to attend that biometrics appointment. 
If USCIS messed up and just didn't send her the appointment notice, she would then need to call the USCIS 1-800 number where she would absolutely never be able to reach a human being and would be subjected to my colleague Heather Roberts' aptly named, quote, flutes of despair, end quote, until she gave up and perhaps fled this wonderful country. Why isn't a biometrics appointment notice simply automatically provided by ICE to asylum applicants in immigration court? And why is USCIS involved in any of this at all? I don't know, but it pretty much guarantees that situations such as this will occur some of the time, especially when individuals, like Ms. Mejia Velasquez, apparently don't understand the English language instructions. For what it's worth, ICE is automatically rerunning background checks before they expire now, but only if taken previously. While this is a big money and time saver, it doesn't prevent the Ms. Mejia Velasquez's of the world who need initial biometrics taken from having their asylum applications denied for reasons completely unrelated to the merits. Judge Motz laments as much in dissent, relying heavily on some of those great quotes from Niz Chavez about how DHS must comply with its administrative requirements, particularly when the individual on the other side, like Ms. Mejia Velasquez apparently, is a non-English-speaking asylum seeker. And that is Mejia Velasquez v. Garland. Thank you, Kevin. This is Chris back with my first case, Ortiz Nares v. Garland, Ninth Circuit, February 16, 2022. Mr. Ortiz came to the U.S. as an LPR, according to the opinion by Judge Lee, at a young age. He has, quote, extensive juvenile and adult criminal history, unquote. The opinion continues saying that relevant here, implying that the extensive history was unnecessary to mention, Mr. Ortiz had a voluntary manslaughter conviction in 1984, 38 years ago, under CPC, California Penal Code, Section 192A. He was sentenced to six years. Mr. Ortiz was also later convicted of corporal punishment or injury of a child in 2002, 20 years ago. Combined, the two convictions were charged by the government as removable crimes involving moral turpitude. Relying on California state cases, the BIA held that voluntary manslaughter in California, despite not requiring a specific intent to kill, qualifies as a crime involving moral turpitude because it involves moral depravity. The Ninth Circuit applied the categorical approach and initially said that deference under its en banc precedent in Ceron, 2014, depends on whether the BIA decision was published. Here it was not so Skidmore deference only. First, though, de novo review of what California law actually says. The panel applied step one of the categorical approach by analyzing elements under California law. The statute says, quote, unlawful killing of a human being without malice upon a sudden quarrel or heat of passion, unquote. The panel relies on a 2013 California Supreme Court decision to add the requirement of, quote, an intent to kill, or a conscious disregard for life, unquote. Mr. Ortiz argued that no scienter was required, based on the BIA decision, as the BIA did not use Bryant in its opinion. But of course, that doesn't prevent the government from doing so. The panel continued to step two of the categorical approach by comparing California's voluntary manslaughter elements with the federal crime-involving moral turpitude definition. Here, Ceron also comes into play, the 2014 Ninth Circuit en banc decision. Quote, as the level of conscious behavior decreases, 
i.e. from intentional to reckless conduct, more serious resulting harm is required in order to find that the crime involves moral turpitude, unquote. Importantly, reckless conduct is included in this quotation because Mr. Ortiz argued that recklessness was not sufficient for a crime involving moral turpitude. The panel is able to reject that argument based on its precedent in Ceron, but also because of the severity of loss of life is able to use the sliding scale to conclude that voluntary manslaughter in California is a crime involving moral turpitude categorically. To support that conclusion, the panel looked at other BIA precedent holding other states' voluntary manslaughter laws in Connecticut, New York, Ohio, and Puerto Rico to be crimes involving moral turpitude. The opinion ends by saying, quote, We now hold what is obvious, expressing some surprise that the court had not previously held categorically that voluntary manslaughter is a crime involving moral turpitude. That invites the question, however, how obvious it is, given the cursory reasoning provided by the court. Base, vile, and depraved conduct that shocks the public conscience is the standard for a crime involving moral turpitude, and obviously the loss of life is a extremely serious harm. In my view, Judge Lee's It Speaks for Itself opinion points to a couple of frailties in categorical approach analysis and crimes involving moral turpitude more specifically. First, because it's an invisible statute at issue, it's all or nothing. Either every voluntary manslaughter conviction in California is a crime involving moral turpitude, or it's never so. Secondly, as Judges Fletcher and Burzon have written on multiple occasions in the Ninth Circuit, this really points to CIMT's vagueness. The standard just isn't clear enough to be able to apply with any consistency, much less give the BIA deference on something that's an outdated concept in many instances. While we may deplore the loss of human life and understand the seriousness of harm, the analysis does not give us confidence in the court's consistency or ability to apply that standard. And finally, the old adage, show, don't tell. Is it obvious? Perhaps, but more explanation would have increased confidence in the result. And that was Ortiz Nares v. Garland, Ninth Circuit, February 16th, 2022. Our third case is Ferreras v. Garland, Second Circuit, February 17th, 2022. Ferreras will be familiar to those of you who listened to Kevin in episode 59 describe the certification opinion to the New York Court of Appeals. He said then, I'll see you in a few months or years to update. Well, here I am with the next chapter. Let's go back to the certification opinion for some of the factual background. Compare how this opinion starts with how Ortiz Nares started. Quote, Andy Ferreras is a native and citizen of the Dominican Republic who became a lawful permanent resident of the United States in 2011. Before he was detained by the Department of Homeland Security, he worked in the restaurant industry and as a barber in the Bronx. Judge Calabresi footnotes that DHS removed Ferreras to the Dominican Republic in May 2020. Quite a difference from the Ninth Circuit, where all the extraneous information provided was that there was an extensive juvenile and adult criminal record. The humanizing is not limited to Mr. Ferreras, however. In the panel opinion, Judge Calabresi notes that Judge Robert Katzman died two days after the certification. Judge Calabresi, about to turn 90 this year, and Judge Sullivan are left on the panel and are able to decide the case as a panel of two. The issue is whether New York Pettit Larceny, of which Mr. Ferreira was convicted three times in 2017, 
has an intent to appropriate property under New York Penal Law Section 155.004b that matches the BIA's definition in its 2016 opinion, Diaz Lizarraga. Judge Calabresi notes that the New York Court of Appeals declined certification three months afterwards, from June to September, and complimented it on its speed. He doesn't mention why it took six months, however, for the Second Circuit to rule, but we won't go into that. Notably, the opinion includes a footnote saying that Mr. Ferreras does not challenge the validity of the BIA's new definition. In Diaz-Lizarraga, the BIA identified a theft offense as a crime involving moral turpitude if it involves an intent to deprive the owner of his property, either permanently or under circumstances where the owner's property rights are substantially eroded. Please return to episode 59 for a more detailed description of the issue, but in short, the majority of Judges Katzman and Calabresi in that instance certified the question to the New York Court of Appeals because of a possible tension in New York state law as to whether the conduct covered is broader than the BIA's definition. Judge Calabresi, in this most recent opinion, also writes a concurrence to his own majority. He notes that the Connecticut Supreme Court had read identical language in a Connecticut statute to allow theft convictions even for conduct that would, quote, not substantially erode the owner's rights. In other words, it had upheld theft convictions for crimes that were not CIMTs, unquote. He also describes the certification as being quote, raisonné, indicating how, quote, we would likely decide the question if the Court of Appeals was satisfied with an interpretation of the Pettit Theft Statute that would clearly make that crime a CIMT, unquote. What's interesting is that Judge Calabresi analogizes the Second Circuit's position in certifying this case to that of a lower court in the New York state system, namely that it's open to discretionary review by the Supreme Court in the state, but it isn't obliged to take it. In the original certification opinion, what Judge Calabresi said because of Judge Sullivan's dissent from the certification was that, quote, if we do not give the New York Court of Appeals the opportunity now and later they say we were wrong, we would have invited difficulties if any number of deported people sought to reopen their cases to correct the mistake, unquote. The concern is there that it was worth the extra effort to ascertain the true nature of state law. In conclusion, Judge Calabresi ends with a flourish. Quote, what remains of the previous majority happily agrees with the previous dissent and not only joins but writes the panel's new majority opinion, unquote. Therefore, in New York State, Pettit larceny is categorically a crime involving moral turpitude, although maybe in future a direct challenge to Diaz-Lizraga. That's Ferrer's v. Garland, Second Circuit, February 17th, 2022. Our fourth case is the first of two from the First Circuit, Shoe v. Garland, First Circuit, February 18, 2022. Lee Chun Shu received a final administrative removal order, or FARO, in March 2018. She had entered in 2014 on a visitor visa, and in January 2018 had two Massachusetts convictions, the first for keeping a house of ill fame, and the second for money laundering. Two months later, there was a notice of intent to issue a pharaoh from ICE. The NOI alleged that Shu was a non-citizen, quote, not lawfully admitted for permanent residence, that's 8 U.S.C. section 1228 B2A, and had been convicted of an aggravated felony as defined in 8 U.S.C. section 1101 A43K, that's the prostitution aggravated felony. 
combined with Section 1228B, which permits removal of people with aggravated felonies on an expedited basis, that's why ICE was able to issue the administrative removal order. It moved really quickly. DHS issued the pharaoh against Sue that same day, signed it six days later, and served it on her two days after that. Ms. Xu claimed a fear of persecution or torture if returned to China, and she had a reasonable fear interview in September 2018. Though that was negative, the IJ vacated the determination by the asylum officer after she asked for review. So in parallel, she has withholding-only proceedings that aren't before the First Circuit in this petition for review, and the pharaoh. Four days after filing the PFR, she was granted deferral under the Convention Against Torture, and the government did not appeal. In June 2020, after the opening brief was filed in the First Circuit, the government canceled the pharaoh and made a motion to dismiss for no final order of removal. In immigration court, the government filed a new NTA as an overstay for Ms. Xu. Her claims in the First Circuit are based in procedural due process. She alleges that DHS failed to provide her with information about free legal services, misled her as to how to challenge the pharaoh, and denied without consent her right to challenge it. She also contended that her pharaoh was unlawful because neither Massachusetts conviction was for an offense referred to in 8 U.S.C. section 1101A43K and wasn't therefore an aggravated felony. Judge Barron's opinion holds that here the pharaoh cancellation was valid. He cites 8 CFR section 103.5A5I, which authorizes DHS to cancel a pharaoh in circumstances that are, quote, favorable to the non-citizen against whom it has been issued, unquote. The language of the regulation reads, when a service officer on his or her own motion reopens a service proceeding or reconsiders a service decision in order to make a new decision favorable to the affected party, the service officer shall combine the motion and the favorable decision in one action. So Judge Barron says there are three factors here that indicate favorability for Ms. Shu in the pharaoh cancellation. First, it meant that she had no removal order. Second, the government represented to the First Circuit that it was unlikely to charge an aggravated felony. And third, the government would not contest cat deferral absent changed circumstances in China. Importantly, the court made a footnote that this is, quote, not a case in which the government canceled the pharaoh only after the government had relied on it to remove the non-citizen against whom it had been issued, unquote. And there, there's a citation to a Fourth Circuit case, Caston Day Lewis v. Sessions. So Miss Sue is unsuccessful in challenging her pharaoh, but she has ongoing removal proceedings based on the new overstay NTA. Important to mention, as amicus curiae, the ACLU of New Hampshire was thanked by the court. That's Shu v. Garland, First Circuit, February 18th, 2022. Our fifth case is Gomez Abrego v. Garland, First Circuit, February 16th, 2022. On this panel, as a visiting judge from the Court of International Trade, is Judge Robert Katzman's brother, Gary. If you haven't read about Judge Robert Katzman's legacy in the Second Circuit on representation for immigrants, it would be very rewarding to do so. This is a protection case, but Niz Chavez issues were raised through a 28J letter. Factually, the petitioner, Ms. Gomez Abrego, and her minor daughter from El Salvador are making a claim based on gangs asking for rent, so-called actual extortion, for the proceeds of her food store. 
The gang members told her, the court recounts, that if she did not give them the money they demanded, they would kill her and her daughter. Her entry in March 2016 near Ote Mesa led to initial proceedings in November of that year. Two years later, she had her asylum merits hearing. When asked what the particular social group being alleged was, counsel framed it as, quote, a victim of gang violence and threats which the police either actively collaborate with or ignore because of their affiliation with gang members, unquote. The IJ, affirmed by the BIA, held that nexus had not been established even if past persecution had. Quote, the social group she claimed to be a part of was not cognizable because it was not a social group that existed independently of the harm she suffered, end quote. For Kat, the agency concluded that the record did not support a finding of police acquiescence or turning a blind eye to any torture Ms. Gomez-Abrego might experience. On appeal to the First Circuit, petitioner Ms. Gomez-Abrego did not challenge that the purported particular social group for which she claimed membership was not legally cognizable. However, quote, switching horses as the panel puts it, she argues the record evidence before it instead supports her membership in a different social group. Now she defines the social group as, quote, Salvadoran female small business owners, unquote. Because the BIA did not address this contention that had been properly raised to it, the court grants and remands the petition on that ground. Ms. Gomez-Abrego's remaining claims are denied or dismissed. Her cat substantial evidence claim, according to the panel, quote, fails to explain how the BIA got it wrong, so that's denied. The two unexhausted claims that are dismissed by the panel are first, the Nis Chavez argument, and second, an argument that the CAT regulations are ultra virus, the statute. On the second, the panel says, quote, while we could get into the nitty-gritty of the CAT regulations, we need not do so here, unquote. Yet, First Circuit precedent in Sousa, a 2000 case, states that, quote, where a resort to the agency would be futile because the challenge is one that the agency has no power to resolve in the applicant's favor, unquote, exhaustion is not required. It is clear that the BIA does not consider itself able to rule that a regulation is ultra virus, a statute. Professor Alina Das, in a 2018 BU Law Review article, titled Administrative Constitutionalism, recounts that the BIA has ruled in multiple occasions that it lacks that power. A 1966 case named Bilbao Bastida, 11 INN Decision 615, rejected the argument that a regulation purporting to limit the validity of an alien registration card for individuals who had been in Cuba was ultra virus because properly promulgated regulations bind the agency. In addition, CIMAS, a BIA decision from 1962, 10 INN Decision 101, rejected an argument that a regulation barring relief to certain classes of non-citizens was ultra virus, concluding, again, that properly promulgated regulations bind the agency. So in congratulating for a partial victory, Thomas Stilianos Jr. in Lowell, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, Mr. Cilianos might consider a rehearing petition based on that one claim actually not needing exhaustion. That was Gomez Abrego v. Garland, First Circuit, February 16, 2022. Our sixth and last case is Deng Chol v. Garland, Eighth Circuit, February 16, 2022. Deng Chol is a citizen of South Sudan born in a refugee camp in Uganda. At age five, he was admitted to the United States as an LPR. Twelve years later, as a teenager, he was convicted of two counts of robbery and sentenced to seven to fifteen years. 
Mr. Deng Chol appeared pro se before the IJ, who ruled that he was not eligible for cat relief or asylum. Asylum he was ineligible for because of his convictions. As relevant here, the agency determined that it was not more likely than not that Deng Chol would be tortured in South Sudan because he is 1. a member of the governing Dinka tribe and 2. not a politician, journalist, or humanitarian worker. The claims to the Eighth Circuit were that the IJ erred procedurally by failing to fully develop the record, failing to provide the State Department's country reports for South Sudan and Uganda, and failing to tell Mr. Deng Chol the definition of torture. Recall that he was proceeding pro se. The Eighth Circuit relies on recent precedents that addressed South Sudanese torture claims. Jima V. Barr in 2019 held that what was required are specific grounds that indicate the individual would be personally at risk. One year later, in 2020, Lasu looked at the likelihood that a member of any ethnic minority tribe in South Sudan would suffer from torture, and that wasn't enough. Showing its regional expertise in South Sudanese cases with this third opinion in three years, the Eighth Circuit concluded that the only evidence about tribal infighting at the removal hearing was a statement by Mr. Deng Chol's mother. The State Department report was too general. It was covered by Jima and Lasu. The Eighth Circuit also sketched out in this opinion by Judge Benton a series of logical inferences that would have to apply to find Mr. Deng Chol likely to be tortured. A fact finder would have to assume, quote, one, that Deng Chol, an Americanized person with no family in South Sudan, unfamiliar with its culture, who cannot speak the native language, would become an internally displaced person. Two, that he would be removed without access to UN protection of civilian sites. Three, that violence would be inflicted on him by government-affiliated groups, not opposition groups. And four, that the violence would be of a severity and duration that rises to the level of cat torture. Unquote. Substantial evidence did not support this chain of inferences, although one could question the third because government-affiliated groups are not required if the government is unable or unwilling to protect the person. The Eighth Circuit moved on to claim that Mr. Deng Chol would be conscripted. His mother testified about this, but, quote, conscription itself does not qualify as cat torture unless done with the intent of inflicting pain and suffering on the conscript, unquote. The Eighth Circuit relied on its own precedent in Cherichel, a 2010 case. In terms of Uganda, where Mr. Deng Chol was born and the alternative designation of deportation country, the IJ concluded that it was too speculative to see Mr. Deng Chol would ever be charged with a crime there and be confined to prison, although acknowledging that the conditions there could amount to torture. In sum, in looking at Mr. Deng Chol's procedural arguments, the Eighth Circuit stated that the IJ has no, quote, duty to act as the petitioner's advocate or lawyer, unquote. While recognizing the IJ's special duty to pro se litigants, this holding shows that Mr. Deng Chol was certainly not able to proceed as well as he could have with counsel. Ultimately, the only claim that the Eighth Circuit is able to entertain because of jurisdictional issues is whether the IJ's failure to ask additional questions about Mr. Deng Chol's tribal faction affected the outcome of his proceeding. The Eighth Circuit concludes no because, quote, cat relief would have been inappropriate even if Deng Chol is a minority Dinka, unquote. The remaining two arguments, based on country reports and the definition of torture, were dismissed, and in the alternative, the definitional argument was denied for lack of prejudice. So in sum, Mr. Deng Chol, who came as a five-year-old, has never been to South Sudan, is under an order of deportation, leaving his mother behind, and there are certainly indications that his pro se representation in immigration court did not assist him in making the case. That was Deng Chol v. Garland.
8th Circuit, February 16th, 2022, the last of our cases, only about half a win this week, but may hope spring eternal and may peace prevail. And next week, Kevin will be back with another edition of Immigration Review. Big thanks to him and all the listeners for having me as a guest host. This is Chris Rickard signing off. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.